remind us of what we hit. I'm not going to go through everything. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go back, grab a copy of the CD, listen to it online. You can go watch it online. But I just want to remind us here this concept of this idea of dying. Verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a deep idea that is. You died. And this idea now that since we've died, it changes how we live. Verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, past tense, the way we used to walk, the way we used to live, and now things are different. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. I am not preaching in any way whatsoever that works save you, not at all. What I'm saying is this, that if you are born again and saved in Jesus Christ, according to what we read here in Colossians chapter 3, our lifestyle, our life will be different. Now, we have to be careful at this point, because when we get into a message like this, it's easy to start preaching morality. And by that, I mean this. We just stand up here behind a pulpit and say, hey, don't get drunk. It's wrong. Hey, don't cuss. It's wrong. Hey, don't live together before you get married. It's wrong. And what happens is we start preaching this morality. So we walk out of a message saying, okay, sounds good. I'll try to drink less. I'll try to curse less. I'll try to keep myself pure. But here's the reality. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of David that committed adultery, committed murder, tried to hide it, and he was still a man after God's own heart. You got Samson, you got Lot, you got Noah, all these characters in the Bible that had sins that we would look at and say they were not moral, but yet they were right with God. And then you can look at neighbors and friends and family members that you have, and you would say, they're a very moral person. They're not drinking. They're not getting drunk. They're not cursing. They're not cheating on their spouse. They're not doing any of these things, but yet the problem is they're not saved. Morality does not equal salvation. Jesus is what equals salvation. So we need to make sure that when we have a message like this, yes, I do want you to walk out of this building today saying, Lord, I want to live a God-centered, Christ-centered life that is moral. But at the same time, I have to make sure it's abundantly clear to you. What good does it do for me to teach you morals if you're not born again and saved? We have to lay that foundation first. And that's why I want to remind you the idea of dying and living in Christ, that we cease to exist and it becomes Jesus. Oswald Chambers has a great quote on this. He says, to identify with the death of Jesus Christ means that we must die to everything that was never a part of him. Our Lord does not pretend we are all right when we were all wrong. That's a great point. Our Lord does not pretend we are all right when we are all wrong. Just because you showed up to church doesn't make things right. The reality is just because you miss church doesn't make sure things are wrong. What matters is do you know Christ and are you out there living this life? So we're going to get to this practical living here in a little bit. But I want to make sure that that foundation is made abundantly clear. So now I want you in Galatians just to remind you of this idea of what it means to die. Once again, if you weren't with us last week, grab a copy of it because it sounds so straightforward and harsh. But the reality is it is very straightforward. This concept of dying. Take a look here at Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so you do not do the things you wish. Verse 17, how often have you ever been there? I'm doing the things that I don't want to do. These words are coming out of my mouth, and I really don't want to say them. I'm watching this, and I really don't want to watch it. I'm being lazy and I really just want to be in the Word. I'm doing these things I don't want to because why? This idea of 16 and 17. There's this spiritual side of me that's born again and saved in Christ, but there's this fleshly lust side of me that just wants to sin. And and it's an ongoing 
battle against each other. And so even though I understand theologically from last week, Romans 6 and Colossians 3, I'm dead. I've died and I'm in Christ and you can't tempt a dead man. The practicalness is this. I still battle this temptation and I still have flesh on these bones that still want to do things that shouldn't. And that's what Galatians 5, 16 and 17 is saying is I have to choose to walk. Where do I want to walk? Do I want to walk in the spirit or do I want to walk in the flesh? Jump down to verse 24, same chapter. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. There's our words again. Live, walk. What are we choosing to do? Are we choosing to live it? Are we choosing to walk it? Or are we going to just go and let the flesh take over? There's this constant idea in Galatians of crucifying. Think back on what it means to be crucified. We're going through that idea on Mark and our study on Wednesday nights. Crucifying a long, painful, aguishing death. For me to crucify my flesh, it's a long, painful thing. You have built up patterns and habits over your existence on this world. And those patterns and habits have to be crucified. Some of you, when stress hits, you respond in a sinful way. Some people lose their temper. Some people resort to drinking. Some people resort to shopping. Some people resort to shutting down. Some people resort to this or that. What happens is we build up these patterns and habits. If you've been married for any time at all, you know what I'm talking about. You see you and your spouse getting into the same ruts, patterns and habits. You had to crucify the flesh. Your pattern and habit may be, I love Jesus for three weeks, and then I go back to three months of not. And then you're passionate for him again, and then it falls away. We have to be careful of this. This is why it's an ongoing crucify the flesh, and it will not stop until we taste death, literally, physically, and we're taken home to heaven with our new nature. But while we're on this earth, there's this idea of crucifying it. You don't have to turn there. I'll read them to you. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We already read verse 24 of chapter 5. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Remember that word, passions and desires. And then Galatians 6, 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Die to it. Die to those things that bring you down. Die to those things that cause you to fall back into the flesh and realize I have died and I now live in Christ. Last point on this. Go with me now to Romans 7, please. Romans 7. Walk. Newness of life. Spirit versus the flesh. Romans 7, verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Newness. That's what we want, folks. We want the newness. Born again, new in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Once again, we understand the theology of it. But I don't know about you. Putting it into practice is hard. I love Romans 6, and I love the pure simplicity of, Lord, I've died to all that. But I love Romans 7, because Romans 7 is a really honest chapter. I'm going to start reading in verse 14 of Romans 7, and I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. If you guys want to follow along with whatever translation you have, listen to the honesty here. Does this not sound like us? Romans 7, starting in verse 14. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. 
I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm really not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. That's why we have to daily crucify ourselves. That's why we have to constantly stop and say, Lord, I'm dead. I'm dead to this. I have to remind myself I'm dead to this so I can live for you. Now, jump back to Colossians 3. That's our little reminder of last week. Colossians 3, remember the simplicity of this. Verse 5, put to death your members which are on earth. Put to death. Literally means cold-blooded murder. Kill them. Kill those fleshly desires. Verse 8, put off. Change your clothes. Take off the old. Verse 10, put on the new man. And verse 12, put on these things. That Some of your translations actually say clothe yourselves. So it's this idea, I have died to my old life and self. I'm born again in Christ. I have taken off the old lifestyle I used to live. I put on the new man now, verse 10, and I put on the new clothes, verse 12, of a new person in Christ Jesus. That is now what we're going to talk about this morning. And the reason I spent so much time building to this is because if I just jump into, don't do this, do this, you're going to think your relationship with God is based on what you do. Your relationship with Christ is based on Him dying on the cross for your sins. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of works lest anyone should boast. But since you have now been born again and saved, it changes how you live. Because remember, you have put to death your old and remind yourself of Colossians 3.3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So therefore, since we have newness in Christ, how should we live? Let's find out. Verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then we also have in verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. So let's go back and talk about these. Verse 5. First one, fornication. Some of your translations, sexual immorality. The actual Greek word is porinia, where we get our idea for pornography. Verse 5 is talking about fornication, sexual immorality. We live in a sex-crazed culture. It's everywhere. That's how people dress. It's in the songs we listen to. It's on the TV programs. It's on the commercials. It's in the movies. It is the sexual, immoral, sex-craved culture. And we don't think it's a big deal anymore. Living together before you're married, no big deal. I've even reached the point now we're talking to people cheating on spouses, really just not a big deal. We've lost this whole mentality of purity because what happened is, verse 5, is fornication. It's all over. Be careful of that sex-crazed culture. 
be careful as a born-again believer in Christ, getting yourself called up into those things because we are a new person. We're a new man, which goes right to the next one. Verse 5, uncleanliness, impurity, moral evil. Folks, certain things are just wrong. They're wrong. And what's happened in today's society is this idea of uncleanliness, impurity, moral evil. We don't call things that are wrong anymore wrong. Isaiah says, woe to him who calls what is wrong right and what is right wrong. And we have lost this idea as a society that there are things that are just wrong. Marriage is one man, one woman. Abortion is just wrong. These things are just wrong. What happens though is we hear this, well, I think. Please don't. Just accept what the Bible says is right or wrong. What has happened now is we take the Bible and we look at the Bible as one opinion among many. And we believe that we have enough wisdom and intelligence to stop and decide, well, I think I can determine what is morally evil and what is morally right. And what happens is we have this society now that just says, well, I think this is okay. It doesn't matter what we think. God is the absolute morality that we believe he knows right from wrong, and we believe in and we teach that. And part of being a born-again believer in Christ is to stop and say, if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. If God says it's right, it's right. And if you disagree with God, then you have to really stop and say, Lord, am I making you Lord? Am I making you God? Because if not, I'm treating your thoughts as just one opinion amongst many. Be careful with that. There are certain things that are just unclean, impure, morally evil. And God says they're wrong. Next one, passion. One translation, inordinate affection, lust. We're talking about uncontrollable passion. Yes, it can be towards those things, the drinking, the drugs, whatever. It can also be towards power. It could be towards greed. It could be towards anything that drives you other than God. Where you almost become animalistic. And the only thing that matters is that passion. Be careful of that. You see it in animals. And the sad part is you see it in humans. Just a couple of days ago, we opened up one of the doors to toss something outside. And one of our cats ran into the house. And it's one of the spring kittens, summer kittens. This is really not that big, still pretty cute. Comes in, and there's a piece of food under our table. We have 10 people living in the house. There's always food under the table. Cat comes in, finds the piece of food, starts eating it. I tell Judo, my one son, I said, can you grab the cat and throw it outside? Judo goes near the cat, this little cute kitten. All of a sudden, that kitten becomes a tiger. Growling, hissing, claws biting. Why? Because its animal instincts took over, and in passion it found its food. It was not letting go of it. When we throw food outside, food garbage, it's fascinating to watch the animals decide the pecking order. One time we had goats, ducks, chickens, cats, and a dog. You throw one piece of food garbage out there, and it's fascinating. It's like animal kingdom right there in front of you. Passion takes over. Now, we see that in animals, and we get that. We see the animalistic nature of you don't touch a wild animal. Do you realize as humans, we become that animalistic nature too? We become so passionate about something we no longer care about eternity. We no longer care about God. We no longer care about glorifying the Lord. We no longer care about what's right or wrong. My passions lead me, guide me, direct me. That's dangerous, folks. The gift of the Spirit is self-control. Be careful of letting those animalistic passions take you over where you have no thought about God anymore, which takes us to the next one, evil desire. This internal drive 
for evil. Listen, desire is not wrong. I hope you have a desire for your spouse. I hope you have a desire for God's word. I hope you have a desire for worship and for prayer. I'm talking about evil desire. That's why in Galatians 5, 24, that verse I read to you, you're supposed to crucify the flesh and its desires. When I get up in the morning, I have so many desires going through my mind. And I have to learn to die and crucify those. When I wake up in the morning, I have a desire for God's word. I have a desire for prayer. I have a desire to serve him. I have a desire to see God get the glory. Then I also have a desire to sleep more. I have a desire to fulfill my passions and lust. I have a desire sometimes just to be angry for no reason. I have a desire to do whatever I want. I have to crucify those desires. It just absolutely amazes me when I talk to people that don't grant this concept of crucifying the evil desires. They'll say, oh, it's easy for you. No, it's not. It's visualizing that desire on the cross being nailed to death. Because we all have evil desires, and you have to learn to die to them. You have to learn to crucify them. And what happens is, if you're a born-again believer in Christ, there is a desire for what is right and good. Romans 7 that is battling that desire for sin and flesh. And you have to learn to crucify and die those desires that take you away from the Lord and focus on those things that are God. What do we desire? We'll get back to chapter verse 5. Covetness. Greedy. Covetness is one of those sins that is so under the surface that sometimes we don't even look at it as a sin. Covetness. It just drives us. Well, I'm not covetous. I... I just think I deserve a little bit more pay. I've been working there long enough. It's not covetousness. I really just, just want that promotion. It's not covetousness. I just really want to win. No, it's desiring. It's becoming greedy that it's all about us. I want what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. It's covetousness. Dawn's got this rule at our house that when the catalogs come for, for Christmas, she doesn't let the boys look through them. Because if they find it, they'll just start circling I said it a message recently, and I can't remember what it was, but it was the day after Thanksgiving. I already had two boys give me their Christmas lists. Didn't have to ask them for it. They already gave it to me. And it keeps getting updated every day. Covetness. We always just want more. More. Now, listen, I'm not picking on anybody when I tell you this story. Because, you know, I've shared with you before from Paul, I love TVs. I absolutely love, I love going to Walmart and standing in front of all the TVs. That's where I want to be when the rapture happens. It's right there in front of all those TVs. I was at Walmart the other day, and there was a couple, and they were looking at TVs. And they were looking for one true story, no exaggeration whatsoever. The biggest one that Walmart was selling was 65 inches. And they stopped and discussed among themselves and decided that 65 wasn't big enough. 70 was the minimum they would want. 70. Now, if you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I feel weird now because I have a 70-inch television. Don't feel weird. Invite me over. That's all I'm saying. Don't, don't be weird about it. Covetness, those folks. We always want something bigger and better and faster and nicer. It never stops. And if you don't believe me, go read the book of Ecclesiastes, the guy that had it all. It never stops. Crucify it. Die to it. Throw it on the cross and nail it. Next one, idolatry. Why idolatry? Because covetousness goes into idolatry. Because you just always want more. It becomes your idol. That's all you think about. It becomes your screensaver on your computer. It becomes the picture on the fridge. It just becomes absolutely everything where you just desire it. And it can become an idol. 
We have to crucify these things, die to these things. Jump down to verse 8. What else in our flesh do we need to die to? Anger, wrath, malice. I kind of throw those all together, but they're each a unique thing. First one, anger. Anger carries the idea of smoldering. Anger is something that builds up over time. Days, weeks, months, years, decades. You've worked with this person for so long, anger builds up, you just can't stand them. You've been married to your spouse for so long, anger builds up, it smolders. You can't. You've served with this person at church and they just always annoy you. They're the neighbor you've had forever and they just always annoy you. It is the smoldering anger that builds up over time. It's sin. Well, what's the difference between that and wrath? Wrath, next one, is rage. It's an outburst. You're just so angry at your meal and the waitress. You take it out on her. The person on the phone that had nothing to do with the problem, you take it out on them. The cashier that got it wrong at Walmart, you take it out on them. That's that rage. You just fly off the handle. And then the next one, malice. Wishing ill on people. You want to see injury come upon them. Now, anger is deceptive. A lot of times when people have an anger issue, they don't realize how it's smoldering on the surface. It's not a full-blown inferno, folks. It's just constantly burning inside of them, that anger towards people, events, and things. You've heard people say, they're just an angry person. What are they angry at? Everything. People just annoy them. Life annoys them. Everything annoys them. And we almost make it sound like it's just a personality trait. Oh, that's just how they are. Folks, it's sin. Wrath. Have you ever been around that person that, my goodness, they're wonderful, great, fun, and then just the wrong thing is said at the wrong moment at the wrong time, and there it's an outburst. That's sin. And then lastly, malice. Malice is probably the most deceptive one. Because you can have malice towards somebody and still look at them in the face and smile. Malice is that I hope you get what's coming to you and I hope it comes quick. Malice is, you know what? I have put up with you for so long I cannot wait till the day that it comes back to bite you. Malice is I, you think you have it all figured out, don't you? But you don't. And I will quietly sing a song and dance when your world comes crumbling down on you because it will make me happy. Malice. It's wanting injury. It's wanting harm on people. Now, there's a difference between malice and God's righteous judgment. I can in love look at somebody and in my mind think, I want God in His infinite grace and mercy to get a hold of you. And if that means something difficult in your life, then I rejoice in that because that will take you deeper in Jesus Christ and bring you to the point of the cross. Malice is, I just want to see you suffer. And you may not even know I have any malice towards you. Be careful of those three of anger, wrath, and malice. Be careful of the smoldering anger. Be careful of the outbursts of wrath and rage. Be careful of that wishing ill of injury on people that no one may even know about. Next one, blasphemy. Now, most of the time when we think of blasphemy, we think of like uh, speaking against God, that you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you don't believe in God, that's blasphemy. Yes, that is a form of blasphemy. It's also translated slander. It means to speak evil of somebody. It means to literally rail against them. Yeah, you would never hit them. You would never attack them. But you'll attack them with your words. Behind closed doors, you will attack them. That's blasphemy. That's slander. And this is what I've noticed a lot of time with blasphemy and slander. We're very picky on who we do it with. Oh, we'll say a lot of things to our spouse about other people that we'd never say to other people. We have our little close group of friends and, and we do things like this. Oh, we can really be open with each other. 
which is really the code for we can sin around each other and we don't call each other out on it. Be careful, folks. Be careful of blasphemy, slander, and attacking people with words. Be careful with always having an opinion on how other people do things. Be careful with always judging other people's. I, I, I'm reading through Matthew right now, and I just got done reading the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and you see God saying, James, you will never know people's hearts and motives, so just be careful judging it. Corinthians tells me judge nothing before the time. Now, I can still call out sin. That's biblical, but there's a lot of times I've got to step back and say, I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. I just need to pray for them. I just read a great uh, commentary, and I don't know if it's Chambers or Spurgeon to give credit where credit's due, but they said if God has given you the discernment to see the problem, then that means he's also given you the discernment to pray for the problem, not just talk about the problem. Be careful of blasphemy and slander and railing against people and attacking people and always using words against them, which takes us to our next one, filthy language. Filthy communication, dirty language. Matthew, out of the mouth proceeds the faults and intents of the heart. I've heard guys talk about the two languages they speak. They got their home language around their wife and their kids in the church, but then they got the language they have at work, and that's just the way we talk at work. You're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You change how you speak. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you do. Be careful of that filthy language, filthy communication, dirty language, which takes us to the next one then, lying. And be careful of the half-truth lies. A half a truth is still a full lie. Be careful of just bending little conversations and little points that make you look better and sound a little better and you're just kind of tweaking it a little bit. I'll use me as an example, true story. This is probably now pushing 20 years ago. We used to have a, a prayer time on Saturday morning. And it was early. It was like 7 a.m. we had the prayer time. And um, I was new as, as the pastor out here. I had just taken over for Jim and I really was just trying. I wanted to set this example and be good. And it was one Saturday morning. I was just running late. I thought, I don't want to be late to this prayer time. That looks awful. And so what happened was, got to the prayer time, I was running late, and I told the guys, I get there, hey guys, sorry I'm late, I had a phone call that morning, there was a train, just a, and they, oh, we understand, those things happen, trains happen, phone calls happen with everything you do. I said, yeah, I appreciate that. And I started realizing, I, I just twisted all the truth. There was a phone call. Phone call was Jason that was leading the study up at the time, called me, and it was probably all of 20 seconds. It was, hey James, Jason, I'm not going to be able to make it, can you cover the study? Oh, yep, I can make it, no problem, click. But I had a phone call, okay? And there was a train. When I turned on the road, I was about a mile from the tracks, and I saw the lights, and I saw the arms start to go up. It didn't really, it slowed me down for all of maybe a second or two, but there was a train, right? And I started realizing after I said this, I thought, how convicting. You, you, you told these half-truths to make yourself look better? You told these half-truths just to make yourself sound a little more? Oh, man, be careful of that. We all understand outright lying is just wrong. Careful of those half-truths. Careful of those half-truths. Why? Because the old man has died. Verse 9. Old man has died. Verse 10. Put on the new man. So, let's die to fornication and uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and lying. Let's die to those things. Let's put them off. Change the clothes. Put on the new. What's the new? Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. Clothe yourself. First one. Tender mercies, tender mercies. King James, bowels of mercies, tender-hearted mercy, that you walk in this mercy towards people. You walk in grace and forgiveness and kindness. 
realizing, but for the grace of God go I. Put down your stones and love them and pray for them. It doesn't mean you accept sin. It doesn't mean you're okay with sin. But when the sinner comes in repentant, you stop and you say, I want to see you grow and go deeper in Jesus Christ and I will show you mercy. What an example of Jesus. Woman caught in adultery in the very act and he says, go and sin no more. Peter, that denied him three times, Jesus goes and restores him. Mercy. It's a beautiful thing. Walk in mercy. Next one, kindness. It can almost be translated sweetness. Have you ever met somebody who's so kind and sweet it almost is fake? There's a person that, that uh, serves out here, and I've served with them for years, served with them shoulder to shoulder in many different ministries, and they have a kindness that is so sweet that you think it's almost fake. But I've served with this person for so many years, so long, seen them in so many different areas of life, it's just the real deal. And you stop and you say, that is that definition of kindness. That is that biblical definition of sweetness. Not something they turn on and off. That is just who they are. And what an amazing blessing that is. And, they and the thing is about this person's kindness and sweetness is I've heard them admonish people. I've heard them talk to people about how they're wrong and they still do it in kindness and sweet. Like you walk away from them, and you're like, I just love that person. They just insulted me and I just love them. I mean, that's, that's just how it is. What a kindness and a sweetness that is that they still speak truth. Which takes us to the next word, humility, a humbleness. Folks, it's not about us. It's about the Lord. I love C.S. Lewis's definition of humbleness. Humbleness is not thinking of yourself less. Thinking less of yourself, excuse me. It's thinking of yourself less. So often we look at humbleness as thinking less of ourselves, as almost insulting. Humbleness is I'm just going to talk about how bad I am. Oh, I'm awful at this. I'm just a worm. I'm nothing. And it really is just searching for compliments. Hey, would you build me up because I'm going to talk about how bad I am. Humbleness, humility truly is, I don't even think about myself. Let me talk about you. Let me talk about what God's doing. Let me talk about what the Lord is doing in my life for his glory. That's that humbleness. Next one, meekness, gentleness. Gentleness. We live in a society today where we love to honor rough and tough. We love it when the guy makes the big hit and stands over that hurt guy and makes the face. We love it when people rub it in. We love the people when they win and they are proudful and arrogant and bravado and boastful. You've got to die to that. Because the description we're supposed to be here is kindness, humility, meekness. And you may say, oh, it's just a competitive spirit. Sometimes that competitive spirit is just flat out sin. Because it doesn't matter who wins. I love the verse in Proverbs. The only thing that matters is winning souls. Now, before you take that and say, oh, you're saying that we're not supposed to go out there and give it our all? No, give it your all. Verse 17, whatever you do, do in word or deed, all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. But not for your pride, not for your victory, not for your attention, not for your glory. For God, you may have more glory for God by losing. We've got to be careful of this idea of humility. Don't take competitive spirit as some type of, oh, that's biblical. Sometimes biblical is, hey, you know what? I don't care if I win or lose. I just want to represent God in this. Humbleness, humility, meekness. Next one, long-suffering. Some of your translations say patience. Look at the word there in 12, long-suffering. How are you going to get around that one? Long-suffering. Some of you have worked with people and you've suffered long with them. Long-suffering. 
Some of you have been married for a long time, and there's long suffering. Some of you have been coming to the same church with the same people, and there's long suffering. That's what the word means. Patience is long suffering. How often we just want it to be easy, and we only want to work with believers, and we only want this to work out. No, the Bible says you've got to suffer long sometimes. That's the world we live in. And part of that long suffering goes with verse 13, bearing with one another. Make allowances for each other's faults. It means to literally carry them where you stop and you realize that person I'm working with, ministering with, going to church with, serving with, is, is I need to help carry them at this time. I need to make allowances for their faults and I need to bear them and with meekness and humility. Not just keep putting them down, not keep telling them how they're wrong, but to stop and say, bear with them in long suffering. I don't know how many times people have come in, especially about Mary, I just can't do this anymore. Is it hard? Yeah. Are you suffering? Yeah. Has it been a long time? Yeah. Okay, so it's long suffering. You got to bear with them. We're not the image of Christ. We're crucifying and trying to become like the image of Christ. It is hard. It is difficult. We got to have patience with it. We got to have long suffering with it. We got to bear with one another. Because we all bring uniqueness that sometimes is really difficult to get along with. I just had a situation with Dawn and I. I had an epiphany with her. We've been married 23 years. Just had an epiphany the other day with something. I had called her, and she didn't answer the phone, and, and all of a sudden I get this text from her back, and the text was something like this, and I should have brought my phone in to read exactly what she said. She said that she was sweeping, and so Elias comes to her and says, Mom, your phone's ringing. So she says, answer it for me. Elias goes, I can't. It's in your pocket long-suffering. That's, that's forbearing with. I called her, then we talked about something, and, and she had this point that she was making, and she started making the point, and I said, okay, gotcha, I agree with it. No, I, we're on the same page. But she kept talking. The point kept coming out. Gotcha, I agree with it. The point kept coming out. Now, in my world, if someone says they agree with me, I, you agree, we're done. If I'm looking up at that clock and that clock is wrong and I'm standing beside like Jason or Scott or somebody like that and I say, hey guys, that clock, the time's wrong. I think we, and they say, hey James, I got it. I don't need to finish my point. We got it. But I realize with Dawn, it's the science of momentum. Those thoughts in her head, they have to keep coming out. They cannot stop. They can't stop. Ladies, are you like that? It just keeps coming out. I need to let her finish her point. Long suffering. Now, before you think I'm only picking on Dawn, then she came to me later on that day, and the, there was something at home, and she came to me, and she said, for the sanity of me and the peace in our marriage, I need you to stop doing this. Wow. I mean, I look in the spiritual mirror of life, and I think, who wouldn't want this? You know what I mean? I mean, who? This is, I got it. And she's like, you got to change this right now. She has long suffering towards me, bearing with me. I tell you, folks, the people you live with, the people you work with, the people you go to church with, your neighbors or whatever, go back and you have to do long-suffering, bearing with one another. That's the nature of Christ, which then takes you to 13, forgiving them, letting it go, sending it away. I don't know how many times people come up to you, I'll forgive them, but I'm never going to forget. Then you're not really forgiving them. I'm going to forgive it, but I never need to see them again. Well, then you're never really forgiving them. Send it away. Let it go. You've got to be done with it right there. Forgiving. If anyone has a complaint against you, even as Christ forgave you, so you also you must do. 
If you have an unforgiving heart, that means you don't understand the forgiveness that Christ gave you. When I run into somebody who's unforgiving, it means they don't grasp the forgiveness that Christ gave them. Because when you understand the forgiveness that Christ gave you, you would be forgiving towards others. We've got to pick up the pace here. Verse 14, above all these things, put on love. Love. Clothe yourself in love. One of my morning devotions throughout the week, it's on Friday mornings, is I just read 1 Corinthians 13 and pray over what love is. Oh, Lord, help me to love my wife, love the church, love my kids, love the lost, love everybody. Help me to understand what love is. Do you understand love? 1 Corinthians 13, spend some time in it. Then verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. This does not mean that you have peace. That means you let God's peace rule you. It judges, it determines things. If you do not have peace with it, that means you do not do it. If that peace is not from God, you stop. So therefore, when you say, hey, I'm going to go do this, does it line up with Scripture? No, then you don't have peace of God. Don't. Is it the nature of Jesus? No, it's not. Then you don't have the peace of God. Don't. Is it going to cause division? Yeah, well, then don't. Peace of God. And what happens is so often we don't let the peace of God rule in our hearts. Verse 15. We just go with, well, this is what I think. This is what I feel. Have you prayed about it? Does it line up with Scripture? Is it, does it glorify God? then if it doesn't, you do not have the peace of God ruling in your hearts. Don't do it. So how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to let go of fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, anger, wrath, all those things? How am I supposed to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and all these things? The answer is found in 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Get in the Word, folks. Get in the Word and allow the Word to, verse 16, dwell in you. Dwell in you. I I use this example a lot. If you're not in the Word, I want to take away whatever excuse you have. If you don't have a good Bible, I'll get you a good Bible. If you don't have a Bible that's got a translation you can read, I'll get you the Bible as a translation you can read. If you don't like to read, I'll tell you the apps that will read it to you. I will take away every excuse you have. And eventually it will come down to, I just don't want to. And at that point, I can't do anything about it. I hope you choose to let the Word of Christ dwell in you. If you're a Pop-Tart devotional person, amen. Thank you for doing something. Now move to a full breakfast meal in the morning. The technology we have today, if you have any type of smartphone, you're standing in line. Instead of checking the sports scores, the weather, and the headlines for the umpteenth time, get some devotionals, get some Bible apps, read. Get in the Word, stay in the Word more than you can ever imagine. Not legalistically, I have to, but because I realize it is that vitally important to me that if I have free time, I want to be studying and praying and being in the Word. Because it's just, I want it to dwell in me, verse 16, richly, abundantly, when I usually run into somebody who does not have the peace of God, does not have joy, and to be quite honest, are spiritually lazy, it's usually because the word of Christ is not dwelling in them richly. They're not giving it any emphasis. Let it dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another, and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. What is psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? It is such an overlapping term. Get into worship. Get into the Word. Get in devotions. Get into to Scripture. Get into all these things. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Make this your day. You're in the car. Have the worship on. Have a teaching on. Fill your life with this stuff. 
Let it dwell in you richly. We really, what it comes down to is a lot of people say, I just don't want to. We're going to get to that. We're going to finish with that in a second. Start using this in other people. Ephesians has a very similar mindset. And it says in Ephesians 5.19 to teach others this. I've got to the point sometimes where people send me a text and it's really difficult. I'll just send back a scripture. I'm not trying to be a jerk like ignoring it. I'm saying God's word has already said it best. I have nothing else to say. God's word doesn't return void. Think that through for a second. That's the only thing you have in this world that does not return void. Your favorite sports team is going to lose. It returns void. That favorite movie is going to get boring after a while. It returns void. Your favorite meal, you're going to get full and not be hungry anymore. It returns void. Everything returns void except for God's word. Why would we not invest in it and dwell in it richly? Give scriptures to people. Give them devotion. Give them God's word. And if you even want to, verse 16, sing with grace to them. I think that's a little weird. I'm trying to imagine me calling you up and saying, hey, I heard you're going through a tough time. I want to sing to you right now. Maybe I will, but at this point, I don't feel led to do that. But the point is, you can recommend a song. You can recommend scripture. Let it dwell in you. And this is what I want to finish with. Go with me to Psalm 119, please. Psalm 119. As you're going to Psalm 119, I just want to finish with with two verses here from Jesus. This is out of John 8. I'm going to do this real quick. Jesus is talking to the uh, Jews at this time. And he says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. How simple is that point? If you you abide in my word, you're my disciples. Because the disciple wants God's word. Wants God's word. Flip side, just six verses later, John 8, 37. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. If if, if God's word has no place in you, you're not really following Christ. Let it dwell in you richly. Jeremiah 15. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. So, Now let's just cut right to it. This is what we're going to finish with in Psalm 119. James, I don't want to. I find it boring. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I'd rather watch TV. I'd rather read the news headlines. I'd rather watch the videos. I'd rather do it. I don't want to be in this book because I would rather have more fun doing something else. Let me just say a couple quick points to that, and we're going to finish with Psalm 119 here. Crucify the flesh. When you wake up in the morning, you have desires, desires that can be good, desires that can be bad. You have to learn to train yourself to say, if I believe this book is that important, I'm going to spend time in it, I'm going to camp myself in this, because I believe it's that vitally important. Number two, if it doesn't return void, do you really believe that? Do you really believe it will not come back empty? If you really believe that, why would you not invest in it? Only thing I can think of is if we really don't believe it. Number three, ask yourself, do you really honestly believe that this is the word of God? If you believe it's really the word of God, you actually are holding something in your hands that God has said, this is how I want to speak to you. Just chew on that. Psalm 119, starting verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. You want to die to the flesh? Get in the word. With my whole heart, 
I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Do you have sin in your life? Find the verses that deal with it. Put them up in your car, in your bathroom mirror. Put it beside your bed. Hide God's word in your heart. It's 12. Blessed are you, Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. Do not read it and then forget it. Read it and chew on it and chew on it and chew on it. Write it out. Do it. You know, I'm, I'm in the process right now of taking Psalm 119 and, and writing it out by hand. And, and as I write it out, it's like, oh, sometimes I just do one verse and it's like, I read that verse, I've taught that verse. But when you write it out, it's like there's a whole other level to it. Contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Jump ahead to 33, same chapter. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep them to the end. Give me understanding that I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. If you're not getting it, if you're not grasping it, maybe 33. Lord, teach me. Lord, 34, give me understanding. 35, make me walk in the paths of your commandments for a delight in it. 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Incline my heart means, Lord, give me a heart for it. Lord, I don't want to be pure. I want to lust. Give me a heart for purity. Lord, I don't want to be in your word. I want to sleep in and be lazy. Give me a heart for your word. 37, turn away my eyes from worthless, looking at worthless things, and revive me in your way. Lord, I want to look at worthless things. Incline my heart towards you. Pray for it. Pray for that heart for his word. Pray for that passion. Pray for that desire. Richly, abundantly dwell in it. And crucify and see what happens. Worship team will come forward here for the final song. I believe on the church website there's a little section.